I would like to thank our listeners for joining us at the Change Leader Podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Sandra Schrock, former Executive Vice President of J.P. Morgan Chase and current CEO and founder of Levelhead. I'm very curious how our insights gained from what they do at Levelhead can help leaders and change practitioners alike. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sandra Schrock. Welcome to the Change Leaders Podcast. Well, thank you. We're really excited to be here from a very hot day here in Arizona. Can you tell me a bit about your professional background and how you came to found Levelhead? No, I'm I'm happy to. As you mentioned, I was an executive at J.P. Morgan Chase for over 30 years. And the last probably decade and a half, I was on an airplane almost every day for work. Hmm. I love my job. It was awesome. I had an opportunity to manage the banking centers across the United States, which required me to be in almost every town in America, which was in itself a, a joy to, to do. However, that kind of living takes a toll on your on your physical and mental health. So I began pretty early on practicing what I now call survival mindfulness. And the reason why I call it survival mindfulness is because I practiced just enough to put things back together so that I could get on that plane the next day and do my job. But when I decided this travel every single day was just about enough, and I, I left J.P. Morgan, I thought, you know what, as I figure out what is next for me, I began to deepen my mindfulness practice. And I began within a very short period of time of practice, relatively short period of time, began to see the world entirely different. Hmm. So very briefly, Amashi, what happened was I kept wondering, I see the world so differently. And wouldn't it be awesome if everybody could see it this way and particularly in the business world? So that kind of was the shortest way I can describe how I developed Levelhead. And can you talk a little about emotional intelligence, why emotional intelligence is important to high-performing teams and organizations, and how one can brush up on their EQ. Yeah, absolutely. Well, EQ is very a lot, very closely aligned to mindfulness. Um, as a matter of fact, mindfulness is one of the known ways that you can improve your EQ. But let me back up just briefly to talk about the way I look at uh, emotional intelligence. And I think a lot of people who who deal with emotional intelligence in the workplace, particularly in leadership, describe it as the ability to identify, express, understand, and use emotions. And um, based on my experience, I was brought up that emotions had no place in the in the workplace, which is crazy thinking as if we're going to leave our part of ourselves at home when we go to work. The emotional intelligent people know how to understand how emotions affect thinking, reason, the way we interact. As a matter of fact, it's the core of our be- being. So those of us who are able to and have a a higher level of emotional intelligence can actually use those things for effectiveness. And, And what's really great about a concept like emotional intelligence, we also now know that it's a trainable skill. And when we start out, just like any other skill, we have more innate ability than other than others. But no matter where we are, we can improve it. So I, I believe that the heart of any organization and 
no pun intended there, heart and emotion, <laughs> is around those leaders that can actually leverage uh, emotions in the workplace to make people, to bring out the best in people, which in turn bring out the best in your organization. So it sounds like mindfulness practice has a direct positive correlation to heightening I excuse me, EQ, but why should I care about mindfulness if I'm a leader of an organization? How will EQ help my organization? How will it help the bottom line? Oh, that's, that's a great question. You know, the primary job of a leader is to influence. And if anybody thinks, um, maybe early on in their career, they think they can coerce people, they can control people, they can manage people to get out the best, get the best out of them. They quickly find out that doesn't work. So that our job as a leader is to influence others and to, particularly in the change process, right? You've got to inspire to influence and to be able to inspire people uses what? Emotions. So understanding how your emotions and other emotions uh, play out in an effort to serve the goals of the organization is one of the hardest but the most effective way to lead an organization to success. Hearts and minds, right? So you, you mentioned a couple things. You mentioned change and you mentioned hearts and minds. And a lot of times change practitioners, they are readily attempting to capture those those hearts and minds uh, to implement a change. How does EQ, mindfulness, and change, how do they all relate to one another? Yeah, it's a it's a complicated factor and I'll I'll do a way to I'll try to explain it in a way that just makes good sense. First of all, when we are, a, mindfulness is defined as being in the present moment with an open heart and mind. And here's what that means in a practical sense. An open mind means you're able to see the world as it is, not through the filters of our past experiences and through the filters of our judgments and biases. We all have them. You know, it's a, it's a way we can shortcut the, to get through the day. But when it comes to leadership and change, if we're using those filters to see the world and to see others, we limit the opportunity. And the way when you are mindful, you become heightened awareness of other people's emotions, your heightened empathy, heightened understanding in the workplace, which allows you to facilitate and be able to see barriers, whether the barriers are within the individual or barriers in the environment. So I think those things are all highly related and, and to the degree people are able to become aware how those things interplay their leadership. We've, I've seen it over and over in organizations. Their leadership skill grows exponentially. On this program, we talk quite a bit about organizational change, but I want to focus a little more on the individual. I know this is going to be a lot to unpack. How can people adapt to this new normal? More specifically, I want to call out three groups of people. People who may have experienced the pandemic firsthand through serious illness or perhaps the loss of someone they know, maybe have uh, lost their job or looking for a job. And last, people who are trying to adjust to the new normal either at their workplace or remote. Can you unpack that a little? Wow. Now that's, that's a mouthful. 
Well, let, let's just talk about a little bit about fear, right? And, you know, if you had to describe one dominant emotion in the environment we're all living, it is that little four-letter word. And people are either afraid of getting ill or they have been ill and they're afraid of of others getting ill, people are afraid of all those things that have happened. They're worried about the future and the ambiguity that we're all living in. We don't know when this is all going to end. And it has substantial, it has changed almost every aspect of our lives. Yep. And so, you know, early on in this process, you know, I think it was on, I think it was the first day that the state of Arizona declared that a stay at home um, order. And I began writing. And I wrote a blog every day for about three weeks on what was going on in the real time and what were the psychological implications, as well as how a mindfulness practice could help us go get through this process. And as a result, I came to have this big aha moment that during this period of time, we as individuals have a choice. We have a choice to kind of curl up in a little ball and decide that I'll just kind of come out of this little ball and when this is all over. Or we can make the conscious choice to work on work our skills so that we can not only come out whole, but even better than we were before, which frankly may seem like an ambitious task. But I I personally have seen other people do it and I've experienced it myself how I am an entirely different person than I was um, in, in, in the beginning. And so I think that, that as individuals, if we look at this as opportunistic rather than something happening to us, that we can get control of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and which really led to, and, and very shortly I'll have a book coming out, which was a result of my aha of how this opportunity that we have right now is to come out of, of a, this pandemic even better. And the title of the book is Thriving in a Global Pandemic. Hmm. And I've given over a hundred real world experiences, um, practices that we can use to craft the world we want to live in and not the world that happens to us. You know, when we think about these kind of things, coping, you know, I, as I talk to people, you know, particularly early on, most, almost everybody, what I call nesting, right? Mm-hmm. They ate too much. They, in, you know, indulged too much in watching TV. They, they didn't go exercise. They didn't do anything. They had a good excuse to do all those, those things that, they're probably not good for us in the long time, in the long term. <laughs> and about four or five weeks into that, we all go, you know what? This is not good. <laughs> a lot of us go, this is not good. I got to get out of this. I got to, I got to one day, you know, establish my life. And so one of the things that particularly in my book, I talk about what are those positive practices that we can do that will use this time to our advantage as opposed to sitting around watching TV, sleeping late, wearing our pajamas till noon, and all those things that at first were kind of fun but are not so fun now. <laughs> I'm looking down at my, my waistline as you're, as you're saying that, <laughs> and, it, and it keeps growing. So I, I, think, I think this is very good for, for me to hear and probably a lot of listeners. Can you, can you tell me when – that that book is going to come out? 
I'm expecting it around December. Great. It's in the final stages of editing right now. And I'm really excited about it because I think that while there is some theory and, and I think thinking people, I believe that thinking people want to know the why behind us and the psychological theory around some of the things and why they work. But I think most importantly, it's an opportunity for people to see that it, we don't, you don't have to go and meditate for 30 minutes a day, 40 minutes a day, or to go to some kind of silent retreat now wearing a mask. But um, you can actually do these things in the normal course of your day hmm. that can make an entirely different way you view the world. And the framework that I use for this, Marcia, is really kind of a three-pronged approach. One is that is to help us realize the three things, what I call the three C's, control, connect, connectedness, and coherence. And control is the belief that we have the personal resources to cope with anything that comes at us. And this is especially important during the time we're living right now. You know, I can remember, and over the course of my my lifetime, everybody says, oh, this is unprecedented change, and, you know, we've never seen anything like this. Well, truly, I think this time, (laughs) it truly is unprecedented change. And it's easy to feel like you're standing in quicksand, that you feel like you don't know where the bottom is. And frankly, that we all have within our within ourselves to understand and realize we do have control over a lot of things. As a matter of fact, I you know, I can control what I do first thing in the morning. I can control what I eat. I can control how I speak to other people. There's a whole wide range of things that we can do to pretty much taking these baby steps that lead to the aha moment that we can take on uh, successively more difficult challenges. Like, how are we going to go find a job? How are we going to deal with illness in the family, financial burdens? We begin to have those feelings as opposed to being the passive victim. The second thing is what I call coherence, which is linked back to emotional intelligence and my my mindfulness practice, is that coherence is a human drive to make sense and meaning in our lives. And most of us are really, particularly early on, struggled with the pandemic and what was going on. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to the world? What does this mean to the future? All of those things. And through creating our own new narrative about what the future hold is, is something that we can take a proactive stance on. What is our taking this downtime that we have instead of eating potato chips and watching streaming, we can take some of this time to reflect. Not a lot of time. You don't have to sit around and 30 minutes do this, but to really be asking yourself self-reflective questions about what does this situation mean now and what does it mean in the future to me and to others? And then the final piece of this, which I think is one of the connectedness, which is, I think, one of the number one reason why people are so stressed and anxious these days is that this is the first time in our history that, and perhaps even, I don't know, if you go back in the course of maybe some of the global pandemics hundreds of years ago, they saw it. But in this particular kind of crisis, um, 
we are not able to reach out to others like we have in other times. I know some of the crises that I've lived through, like 9-11 or, you know, even some of the financial crises that we saw in the financial services when we thought the world was truly coming to an end, mm-hmm. is that we had each other and we could talk about it. We could be together. But now we have to be apart. And so that has really, I think, created the most stress and anxiety among us of anything. We can't physically touch. We can't hug. You know, I'm a hugger. You know, I learned early on. I ask permission now, but I don't know you well. But, <laughs> but, but you know, hugging and, and touch is a very powerful healing tool, which we don't have available to us. Mm. I know that's probably a long answer to your question about individually. But I think that I, I know, I know we have the ability to put forth uh, a few practices in the normal course of our day to use this time so that we can come out on the other end much better than we even started. What you said was, was really insightful and really interesting. I wonder if you can share maybe a little snippet of, of what a, a daily practice might look like when I, when I wake up in the morning, you know, do do I take 10 minutes out of my day and do a breathing exercise or what, what, what does that look like? If, if, if I, if I don't have to go off to, to a, a cave and, you know, run away from, from society, how, how does it look in, in my everyday life? Well, that's, that's a beautiful question. And I'll just give you just a few things that, that every single person can do. It takes no extra time. For example, first thing in the morning when I wake up, the very first thing I do is before I even move, I stretch. Mm. Now, all of us lay asleep whatever way that we sleep. But we can stretch, we can feel our toes, we can acknowledge and we say, hey, I have a body. I'm so excited. I can stretch and feel Feel that connection between my mind and body. It doesn't take any seconds, truly. Mm. When I'm out of bed, I continue that little little moving around. And in my age, it really kind of creeps and cracks when I do that, <laughs> but it still happens. And at that time, I say a nice word of gratitude to my body and the fact that I have another day ahead. Mm. Just a simple acknowledgement of that. And depending on your routine, mine particularly is connected to brushing my teeth and throwing water in my face. But whatever your routine is, it's just a simple making sure that you're not thinking about what you're going to do. It's just turn your attention to your senses, the smell of the toothpaste, the feel of the cold water on your face. And if it's conducive to where you live, I go outside almost immediately. Now, I have two little King Charles spaniels which demand by that time to go outside so it's easier for me to do that but to get that feeling of i'm awake i'm alive and and um and grateful for this day that is a mind shift that is a mind shift and a connection to your body that takes no time but is a but instead of just immediately start thinking about worrying about what's happening today It creates you with this wonderful way to start the day. And there are like, there are hundreds of things that we can do that are related to that. 
Wow. The number the number one thing in all the literature that's coming out, and there's tons of research coming out what's going on. It's a it's a psychologist field day, what's going on, right? And the, the studies that are coming out that the people that are able to manage the stress and anxiety are highly connected to the outdoors. Hmm. And almost any setting you're in, there is an opportunity to be outside. And I think that the tendency has been for all of us to get into our cave, be inside our house, as opposed to finding ways that we can experience that. And having a simple walk, you know, I do a four-mile hike every single day. Now, I live in a beautiful place in northern Arizona where I can do that. Not everybody has that that opportunity, but there is something we can do. Even if it's looking out, if you live in an apartment and looking out, you can see nature somewhere. Mm. And to be able to focus that and get that connection will remind us that we're not alone, that we are part of something else. Mm. So I, I think that, you know, there's that I could go on for hundreds of different things. When we commute, for example, or most of us or run an errand, those are wonderful times to turn on our empathy button in, inside our head is to look and be grateful for our lives and what we have to be grateful that we are able to go out and purchase those grocery items that we need. We're grateful that, you know, particularly whatever our motor transportation is that we're doing that we can see others that may not be as fortunate as we are in terms of getting from point A to point B. And it's just an awareness and shifting our focus is really the number one thing that you have to do. But you have to be committed to do do these things because people often confuse simple is easy. (laughs) And everything I just said may be simple, but it's not easy to be consistent in that. Mm. That's those are really, really great tips. And I hope that some of our listeners take the path less taken and try to instill a couple of those into their daily practice. When I think about high-performing professionals and students, there's a certain level of expectation that comes with that. Taken to the extreme, this could begin to manifest into high-functioning anxiety or even depression. A person may feel unable to say no, may feel like everything needs to be perfect, and might feel like failure is absolutely unacceptable. Can you yeah. talk about why this happens and, and how to prevent this? Yeah. Well, I do a lot of work in higher education. As a matter of fact, one of the divisions of our company is called Higher Ed. It's Level Head Ed. And, and basically, one of the things that we do is we've done eight, see how many months has been about almost 24 months of uh, study and we've been doing uh, this will be our fourth case study particularly with students and that's where this all starts in terms of being the perfectionism and the self-criticality that we do and we take that into the workplace we come with all these expectations of ourselves that largely come from our family and friends and our our environment that we absorb. And one of the things that I found through that that research is that students are surprised to realize that a lot of the anxiety comes from that little voice inside our head. 
And they don't realize that voice that talks to them that tells them they can't, that tells them they're not good enough, that they should have done better. How could they be so stupid as to make that mistake? And so when we've done that research and debriefed, one of the biggest ahas these students have is a recognition that that dialogue is going on. Mm-hmm. And, and once they realize that and tune it in, then they're able to move to the second phase of that is reframing that voice. And one of the techniques I, I say to people when they say that, they hear this going on and the, the self-talk that happens. It's just ask yourself a simple question when that dialogue starts. Would you ever say those words to someone you cared about or to a small child? Mm. And if you wouldn't say that to someone you cared about, why would you say those things to yourself? Mm. Is there a kinder way to, is there a way to encourage as opposed to discourage? Is there a way to remember the times you were successful as opposed to not successful? And then to simply ask yourself the question, so what? <laughs> so what? I didn't do well. The world's not going to come to an end. The world still is the same. You know, I am okay. It's, and uh, to ask yourself and to remember that if we're focusing on moment by moment, Our life is pretty good. It's only when we extrapolate that little failure or those expectations into something bigger than it is, is that we have this anxiety and stress. Absolutely have to ace this podcast today, Moshe, or my life is over, right? (laughs) I mean, once we adopt that kind of philosophy, we're frozen and we're doomed to seeing the world in, in a pretty drab way. And how can adopting mindfulness into our daily lives, as you suggested, help us accept that necessity of failure, the positives have changed, and really be more engaged at work and and also at home? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of people just kind of don't want to think about reflection because it is so painful to be alone with our thoughts. We would almost do anything and then to avoid that. As a matter of Mm -hmm. fact, one of the, the things that that people, particularly during this pandemic, were almost manic to fill their day with something that distracted them. And so when you want to, what mindful, your mindfulness practice allows you to do is to get more comfortable and to be willing to accept those thoughts and feelings as they are without judging them as good or bad, right? And to know sometimes I have thoughts about people and things that are not very kind. <laughs> and and to accept that I'm not a bad person, but that I'm just human. And, and I think by recognizing and creating distance between our thoughts and our emotions than who we are, we're not either of those things. We're something else altogether different. A simple thing of, you know, I hear people say this, I am so stressed. I am so upset. Well, no, you're, you're not that. You're something else. You may feel stressed, but you are something else. That's not who you are. Hmm. And so what mindfulness allows you to do is to have that recognition. And frankly, what it has done for me is that it's given me a sense of humor about myself. (laughs) Um, 
And the silly things I'll be thinking, I'll go, well, that's kind of funny at your age that you're having those thoughts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, you know, we have put on those extra pounds. I've got five extra pounds. Oh my gosh. I won't be able to show my face in public. I mean, all those crazy things that we say, um, that I would never say to my friend, walk up to him and say, Hey, you like looking a little chubby today. Um, <laughs> We just wouldn't say those things. So I think that mindfulness allows us not to be perfect by any means, but it actually allows us to connect on our humanness and our failures and the things that we've we've done. The most humbling thing I have ever done in my entire life was starting a business, Mm -hmm. right? And starting from scratch, and accepting just because I was successful in my other career that I was going to be immediately successful in this was a hard thing to, to learn that I was going to take a lot of bumps and bruises. And, and frankly, I took them all very seriously at first. How could they not see that this is a fabulous program? How could they not see that this could help them? And now, not that I expect it, but it's just part of the part of the journey. Mm-hmm. It's a lot less difficult than it was when I started because I began to realize all the things that I was practicing, I was helping other people practice, I wasn't doing myself, right? And so reframing those and, and understanding that I was humor, that I was just learning, and that it was okay, even with my level of experience, to experience some failures. When I I think about mindfulness, especially since we've we've been talking about this topic, it seems like it's the ability to to be more fully present and open to anything life throws at me. This also right. this reminds me a bit of of having a growth mindset. Can you speak to if there's any intersection between mindfulness and having a growth mindset? Yeah, you know what's interesting is that people think, and it and it doesn't have to be. I'm always any age. I think a lot of us grew up in a in a world where we we go. I've learned all I need to know. I don't need any more. I have every all the information I need. As a matter of fact, I run into a lot of people like that, and I think that a mindfulness practice. Once you're open to the fact that you're using that those experiences are good, but they sometimes are very limiting, is the fact that you begin to see the world differently, which promotes a growth, a, a growth mindset, which mm-hmm. means once the barriers are down, the filters and biases and judgments, and you're seeing the world as it is, you have no alternative but to grow and to see things differently. And to look back of where you were is just part of the journey. It's the epitome of a growth mindset. And, um, and frankly, for those of us who have it, it would, it would be a pretty boring world if we thought we've learned everything that we've ever need to learn. We know all the answers. I mean, that would, I don't, I don't know about you, but that would be like, that would be worse than death, frankly, <laughs> is to realize that this is it. This is all I got. <laughs> I, I know that you, you walk the walk. You, you recently completed your, your PhD. Congratulations on that, by the way. Um, Thank you. 
Did you use any of the level head techniques to help you balance your life during that time? And if so, which ones seemed to help the most? You know what? That's, that's a really great question. One of the things, you know, to go back and get your, your doctorate at my age <laughs> and, and to go through and become a student again is again a humbling experience. But I would say one of the things that I remember our very first, we have these residences where you're, you go through this, you know, kind of a boot camp environment where you have the best of the faculty there and everything. And, and I remember the dean of the college standing up there and this is early on. And he said, he said, you know, this is in psychology, mind you, stands up there. And I just want to tell you, your life for the next four years is going to be a living hell. It's just going to be a living hell. You're not going to have time for your friends and family. Your health is probably going to suffer. And he goes down this long list of things. But nevertheless, you're going to get this done. You'll get it done. And when you're you're done with this, the world will be different. I sit there and I go, holy moly. <laughs> what is this man? What's going on here? And I, for a second there, and I see all these people writing this down. You know, you won't be able to see your children. You won't do this. I'm like going. And I you know, it really bothered me because I'm like going, I don't, I don't know that that's true. And why is he telling these people this? Right? Literally, they were writing it down. I, none of that is true. And, um, and I don't care if I were 25 or whatever. I'm not saying what my age is now. None of that is true because first of all, the, and I got through it very fast. I did very well through the program. And here's how I did it is that. I spent a lot of time with friends and family. Mm. I made sure and carved out that time even more, particularly weeks where I had a very demanding deadline with work and with, you know, my education. I made sure I recharged and refueled. Mm. And I kept a reflective diary, which for nothing else, it's a comedy routine what I was writing. I mean, I now go back and read it. I go, wow, that was really kind of funny. So I did that you saw that. <laughs> but, you know, it was a, for me, it was a writing thing. For other people, it might be something else. And then the final thing I did was back to this nature thing. And I don't mean to be beating this to death, but I do think that the particularly our society and our time is so connected to our electronics that we're not able to release and be outside and be in, be in the out of doors. And, you know, when I was talking to people about, oh, everybody said, let's go take a walk. And so I get people to take a walk and they all have their phones with them and their headset in. I go, hey, hey, you know, you're going to miss everything when you do that. <laughs> so, you know, I think that, and I, I don't know what's my experience or my age or whatever, but certainly my mindfulness practices Help me see that and to cut down this self-judgment and self and, and to be a little more compassionate about making mistakes, getting feedback from professors who I didn't think they knew what they were talking about, you know, criticizing my work, you know, <laughs> didn't feel good. But because I could put it in perspective, I, I was able to open up and to probe and find out what they really meant behind that. And it was certainly a learning experience. So I, I know I would not have gotten through it without, I probably would have given up like most people who embark on this journey. Most people do. Mm. You mentioned something interesting about electronics and there's research coming out that suggests social media, especially, is not all that good for us from an emotional 
standpoint. What are your thoughts on on people, you know, taking a fast from from electronics and social media and that sort of thing? It is true. I mean, the the research is is very very compelling that the media is the number one cause of our stress and anxiety. You know, I have friends that tell me, you know, call, one friend called me last night. She said her husband, who's a medical doctor, cannot. He has the media has new, these. I wouldn't even call them news, but these commentators on on all day long as he in between patients as he's listening to. And he's already upset. So he comes home and he watches this. He he watched the debates and got himself all worked up. She goes, you know, what what you know, what's going on here? And, And number one thing I found is that it's like anything you it's really difficult to go cold turkey. You it's almost impossible. And if you do, it won't last long. And it'll cause you so much anxiety that you won't be able to handle it. What I recommend that people do is to dose it out. And and whatever that dosage you do, make sure it'll you can start to continually wean it down and be committed to doing it. Matter of fact, just mm. on your social media, I do it during this period of time from X to Y, and that's all I'm going to do. Put the phone out of your out of out of reach and just set the timer for it. And pretty soon you'll get used to it. But just to say not do it is not going to work. You've got to have a plan to do it. And a lot of people start out by that, like I said, going cold turkey on it. They give up really quick because the anxiety level gets so high. They can't stand it. And it is truly an addiction. It is no question it's an addiction. People wish I were addicted to my phone because I forget where it is. Um, <laughs> where is it? My husband goes, where is it? I've been texting you. Where have you been? You know, um, so I, I think everybody's just a little bit different. But that's, that's generally what I would recommend. And I've got a lot of practices in the book that's coming out on digital detox that are very simple and very easy to use. Hmm. Wow. You, you you kept mentioning cold turkey and dosing it out. And then, you know, my, my thought process was, wow, this sounds like an addiction. And then you said it, yeah. you know, it, it really, it really makes me think about when I lose my phone, the anxiety that starts to bubble up and, you know, I'm, oh no, where, where did, where did I put it? Why, you know, uh, what if someone calls? What if I miss a, a text message that, that just really makes me reflect on on those instances so i i appreciate you you outlining it you know kind of laying it out just flatly and and succinctly so i I appreciate that you bet i want to get a little more levity into the conversation and i want to really learn a a little bit more about you and what you do in your free time. Can you tell me about your hobbies and and what you enjoy doing when you are not devoting yourself to writing a book or level head or et cetera, et cetera? Well, first of all, as I mentioned, I'm one of those weird people who love to exercise. As a matter of fact, one of the highest level of anxiety I had is when the gym closed. Hmm. I really, I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? So when I had the spare time, I figured out ways that I can, I can do the, my routine in a different way. But I would say I do lots of that. And it's, I do it every single morning, get up early, do that. And then the, the thing that I do that gives me more satisfaction, again, I've mentioned this many times is being outside. 
you know, being in nature, taking walks, that is the most soul rejuvenating thing that I can do. And of course, I have dogs who are my life. <laughs> I rescue King Charles Spaniels. And that is the most fulfilling thing ever is to get one of these little dogs that were who were inside a cage most of their lives because they came from farms where they, you know, pet pumper. I can't think of what you call them right now. Anyway, <laughs> where they raise these dogs and they never get to go outside and they just have puppies. So oh, we rescued like a kennel? from like a uh, yeah. I can't think of it. I lost my mind there. Hmm. But anyway, that's that's really what fills my soul. I do is when I could. I do a lot of volunteering for animal shelters and and those kinds of things. Hmm. So I have a, a last question for you, and this one generally throws people for a loop, but please humor me on this. I actually think this is a really fun question, and it just tells a lot about about my my guest. If you could be any animal, what animal would you be and why? Well, my first thought would have been one of my King Charles Spaniels. <laughs> uh, but truly, on just as I say those words, if I could be any animal, I would want to be an elephant. Hmm. Obviously, you know, they're, you know, they're having motion, they have, they're intelligent, they can see the world at a little higher level because they're taller. They, they actually can create their own environment because they can move things out of their way. They have a lot of autonomy, you know, to, to move in the world. And they're not subject to as many predators. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. As, as, as others, which is always a good thing, not to be eaten. <laughs> so I think that's, that's probably what I would be, an elephant. And, and you don't, um, you know, you wouldn't be conscientious about the, the extra weight of an elephant? Uh, no, actually, it gives me permission. Ah, okay. I like that. No, I don't have to worry about it. Size is actually good then. <laughs> Putting on a few pounds would be fine. <laughs> ah, that's great. Well, uh, Dr. Schrock, I want to thank you. This has been a really enlightening conversation, and it really demystified mindfulness for me and I hope for a lot of our listeners. So, you know, thank you for taking the time to to spend with me today. Oh, it's certainly my pleasure. It's it's actually my mission in life is to help others realize that they can take more control over over the pleasure and the enjoyment of life. Mm. And that we all have the power of that no matter what our situation is. And it's all between our ears. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. I cannot think of a better topic and a better guest to end 2020 here at the Change Leaders Podcast. Mindfulness. It's a skill that can help us navigate uncertainty and be okay with things not working out the way we'd anticipated. Dr. Schrock's definition and tips on mindfulness that seem to make up the philosophical and product foundations for her company, Levelhead, are tangible and no doubt effective if practiced with consistency. As I reflect on my 2020, I'm so grateful to have gainful employment, 
to have a roof over my head and to have all of my friends and family safe from the pandemic. But my 2020 has been far from expected. Professionally, like many, I was distracted by the state of the country, the pandemic, the racial strife, the political dramas. Personally, what was supposed to have been a long-awaited reunion with my wife turned into anything but. I accepted a position and then purchased a house in Dallas at the beginning of this year. Packing up my house in Nashville, I hightailed it to Dallas under the seemingly foolproof assumption that my wife was transferring from Phoenix to Dallas to join me. Already having spent months apart with me working in Nashville and my wife working in Phoenix, to say we were eager to be back together would be an understatement. We were emotionally ready to reconnect with our chosen lifelong partner. Pre-pandemic, she received approval for transfer, but shortly thereafter, once the pandemic began, her transfer began to unravel. Days turned to weeks and weeks turned to months and eventually her transfer was just denied. Luckily, my employer was understanding enough to agree to let me transfer to Phoenix. But there was another problem. We had just purchased a house. That's not a 99 cent store purchase there. There is no return policy on that, folks. And selling it so soon after purchase would have meant a large financial loss due to all of the fees associated with the sale. So we figured we would we'd rent it out. But the deed had a stipulation that it needed to be my primary residence for one year. That meant we couldn't just rent it out. So I contacted my bank to see if an exception could be made due to the circumstances. That seems reasonable, right? After speaking to about 40 different people, about five supervisors, and waiting about three months for an answer, we were right back where we started. They denied our request for an exception. We were not able to legally rent out our house. We finally decided that we can ultimately pay the mortgage with me being anywhere. We just wouldn't rent it out until the year mark. Mindfulness helped get me through those difficulties and stay productive at work through all of those little stressors and big stressors and that emotional stress of being away from my friends and family during you know, the entirety of the quarantine. Today, I'm happy to report I'm officially back in Phoenix, living with my wife after about one and a half years. And although this hasn't worked out exactly how we thought it would, we're really hopeful about the new year. With multiple vaccines now being implemented across the country, we are optimistic, cautiously optimistic, but optimistic about the possibility of some semblance of normal returning to us at some point next year. And I hope you are too. Whatever 2020 has brought you, I hope that you are able to stay grounded and to stay grateful. Here is to safety, normalcy, and mindfulness in the new year. I wish you and yours the happiest of holidays.